1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brother and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, please keep the Bibles open on that uh, page um, as we follow this final passage um, together. And we've been in this uh, letter of 1 Thessalonians now for, um, I think, 11 or so weeks. And um, yeah, it's great to be able to finish it off together. Um, there's plenty in these verses, so I won't be able to cover everything. But again, as always, please do feel if there are questions that have come up from the passage you want to discuss or things that come to mind over the, the weeks ahead, please do contact me and it'd be a pleasure to have a chat with you either um, straight after the service or pray something through with you uh, about it or um, please do contact me. But as we um, start, I've got a picture I want to show you. Um, for those of you who are sharp-eyed would realize this comes from a, one of the Kingsman films, so it isn't real, um, thankfully. Uh, but what I'm going to share from Charles Colson, an account in his book, The Body, did actually take place one Sunday in a church in Massachusetts. It was the right hook that got him. Pastor Waite might have stood in front of the communion table trading punches with the head deacon Ray Bryson all morning had not Ray's fist caught him on the chin with two minutes and 15 seconds into the fight. Waite went down at the communion table where most members of Emmanuel Baptist Church had just declared their commitment to Christ. Two tenors and a baritone from the choir jumped over the wooden railing of the choir loft and began exchanging punches with members from both sides of the aisle. Mary Dahl, the director of the Dorcas Society, threw a hymnal at one of the tenors, but the missile sailed high and wide and splashed down into the baptistry behind the choir. Sharon Carlson had given up on the organ and moved to the piano, where she tried to restore order by playing Blessed Be the Hands That uh, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. The fight ended with the police arriving on the scene. They restored order, took down the names for the report they had to file, and recommended that some of the men seek medical attention. Ray Bryson's hand was broken, and Mary Dahl's knitting needles were confiscated. Wow. Thankfully, it's never happened at Grace Church. Colson called this incident the offering of the right fist of fellowship rather than the right hand. And actually, when you do a bit more detailed research on this very sad episode, it seems that the eruption was the fruit of a very dysfunctional fellowship 
over many years that included manipulation, cover-ups, domineering leadership as the church drifted further and further away from its love for Christ. Now that's, it is both, when you hear it, it brings us a bit of a smile, but it, it is a sad incident, isn't it? And what we've seen in Thessalonians to this letter to the Christians there is a church that have become a model church, a church that we would want pictures on PowerPoint showing how they're living. And this letter paints a huge picture of what it looks like for Jesus's community to be at work in love with each other. Um, Paul didn't have the luxury of spending many years preaching and teaching and pastoring this church, maybe a month or two at the most. And yet, what we hear in chapter 1, verse 3, just reminding you of that key verse that we looked at several weeks ago, Paul writes, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, hope that triad that keeps coming up. This was a church that was faithful. This was a church in love with Jesus and showing that love to each other. And so as Paul finishes the letter here in verses 12 onwards, he finishes it in a purposeful and orderly way. Now, I know as it was read, it could feel a bit like a scattergun, much like a parent telling a child who's going off on their holidays, you know, here's a list of things like, don't forget your sun cream, make sure you drink plenty of water, uh, look after your passport, uh, don't stay up too late. They're all the things that Emily and I were telling Sam before he went off. But um, it's not just a jumble of instructions. It's purposeful and orderly. There are 17 commands in verses 12 to 22, and each reinforce that life of faith, love, and hope. Each are a practical application of what it means to look like a spirit-filled community. We use that word community often, don't we? But what does it mean to be a distinctive, Christ-centered community? Well, here, Paul is giving some fleshed-out pictures of what that looks like. These are priorities that help us live as Jesus' communities, and these are priorities that help us live in the light of his return. So with that in mind, let's just dive straight in. And my first point is this. We need to grow in love for each other. It's not rocket science. It's not something brand new, hopefully, for you. We need to grow in love with each other. And that first focus comes here in 12 to 15 with respecting church leaders. Now, Paul has this repetition. You see it in verse 12. Now we ask you, and if you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see it there. Chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter uh, 4, verse 13. These markers, now, brothers and sisters, um, he raises a new issue, a new topic. And so here is a marker showing the attitude that Christians should have towards each other, and particularly those in leadership. Let's have a look at verse 1. To acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you, literally, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Now, Paul's short mission at Thessalonica meant he probably didn't appoint any leaders. He didn't have time to do that sort of groundwork. And so perhaps some of the new Christians, some who were part of the synagogue, some who had responsibility in that gifting, had taken on leadership. They stepped up to serve this growing community of believers in Thessalonica. Now, Paul doesn't also give specific titles here to leaders, which is something he does later in his latter letters like 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. 
But he does say how you can spot a leader. There are three characteristics. Did you notice them? Firstly, they work hard among you. And that word for work describes manual, sweaty, physical labor, physical toil. It's the same word back in chapter 1, verse 3. Labor, physical toil, prompted by love. So real leaders work hard out of love. Not out of love for being noticed, not out of love for money, but for the love of God and his people. Remember Paul's description back in chapter 2, verse 8. Flick over in your Bibles to that, of his own motivation for his work. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. So Paul is a living example of this. Paul, Timothy, and Silas. That team together. This hard work is expected in Christian ministry. Preaching, teaching, guiding, visiting, caring, praying for God's people and those who don't yet know him as well. That's what leaders sign up for. Leaders are to walk in the footsteps of the chief shepherd, the perfect pastor, our saviour Jesus Christ. They lead by pointing people to him. As John the Baptist put it so powerfully, he, Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. What a wonderful word to have on not just the lips of church leaders, but in their hearts. Real leaders in God's church work hard out of love for Jesus and his people. Can I ask you, therefore, please pray that that is true here at Grace Church. For our elders, for those who have specific ministry responsibilities, it's not about proving how hard we are working, with results and productivity, rather how we're investing in people, Christians and those who do not yet know Jesus, investing in people so that they're built up in their faith, so that in some way they might encounter the saving love of Jesus. Secondly, next characteristic, a leader is over the people of the Lord. Now, in other words, they have this spiritual responsibility for the people in church. On the last day, When we come before Jesus and accounts are given, it's the leaders, he will be saying, what happened on your watch? Did you bring them closer to me? And it's important that Paul qualifies their authority. It is in the Lord, i.e. it's delegated by Jesus, and it's in step with him. It isn't an authority that they can use for their own power and gain. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, some of my favorite verses there, have this picture of Jesus saying, authority is not lorded over people, but is serving as he did. You see, gospel leadership has no place for the person seeking self-fulfillment where my needs are met first. If that's someone in leadership, you know it's going to go wrong the wheels will come off soon. That's true in society, it's true in business, it's true in whatever sector we work in, it's especially true in God's church. Nor is it a place for a dictator, someone who's prepared to throw people under the bus, someone who is so fixated on completing a vision that they will go to whatever nth degree. And I think we need to pray about that as a church. 
that we would never stray into those areas. God, keep us from that. I love the fact that the root meaning of the verb care for or over you is, is stand before. That's, that's one of the emphasis in, in that verb, stand before. It's a picture of the protector standing between the sheep and the wolf. That caring work finds its perfect fulfillment, doesn't it, in Jesus Christ, the shepherd who gave his life for us, who took hell so that we wouldn't have to. And then thirdly in verse 12, what are we told? They admonish the church, which means warning people. It means sometimes saying the difficult things. Now that's where true friendship kicks in. A friend is someone who can speak truth, even though it might cut and hurt, so that we can be built up and grow. And that word as well isn't just about having a go at someone or always going in on the hard criticism. It actually combines the tenderness between brothers and sisters with that firmness of correcting behavior. It's the same word used for warning people in verse 14. The same Greek word is used there. It's being prepared to confront sin. It's about being open to biblical correction. It's about guiding people into what is right and true before the Lord, what it means to be obedient to his word. And with the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20, when Paul was saying goodbye to them, We see this worked out, this firmness and compassion, because he warns them about not letting false teachers in urgently, thoroughly. Like, don't do it. Don't let, be aware false teachers will come. You cannot have anything to do with something that is not the gospel. And yet he does it with tears in his eyes. The firmness and the compassion. And this is counseling, this sort of counseling, this exhortation, this encouragement, this word of concern, is, is parent-like care, isn't it? It's the desire to see people enjoy God, and it's rooted in his word, and it's applied in fellowship. It's about building each other up. It, it comes from a heart of love. And I think it's important to mention that leaders also need admonishing by their church family. We must be lovingly challenged. We must be corrected. We must be encouraged and helped to keep doing the work God has given us. It's, it's church leaders like this that are to be recognized and respected. Now, I'm thankful that when I look at leadership throughout Grace Church in all its different facets, whether it's elders or trustees or life group leaders or children's and youth leaders, whether it's music leaders, whether it's student leaders, whether it's pastoral care that's given by people in lots of different ways, taking responsibility, being, taking the initiative. I give thanks because I see this heart of love and compassion. I see people wanting to serve out of that joy and generosity that Jesus has given us. And so I do pray, and I hope you continue to pray and live out that unity in him. Because that is what community looks like. This is the nitty-gritty of it. Do we care and love each other enough, not just to say the hard things, but to weep and to show compassion and to walk with people through those times so that we all love Jesus more? And can you see the fruit of it? It's there very clearly in verse 13. Live in peace with each other. You see, living in peace is the result of this sort of work, this counseling, this pastoral care. It's a gift. And we've got to do good to each other in verses 14 to 15. That's how we grow in our love for each other. 
And one of the reasons God has put us in Christian communities is to help us change. So actually, signing up to be part of church is signing up to say you want to be a person who will be changed. You're not going to stay as you are. You don't come to be part of a community under Jesus to just be reinforced with where you want to be and who you are. Your heart, your mind will be renewed. And he's given us each other. It's not a solo project. And verses 14 to 15 really capture the reality of every member ministry. Did you notice that in those verses? Every follower of Jesus has a part to play in one another's maturity, in one another's holiness. It's not just the leaders. All Christians are called to warn, to encourage, to help, to be patient with each other. It's there in verses 14 to 15. Paul switches. He doesn't say this is exclusive to one group. It's all of us as believers. This is challenging stuff if we take it seriously. The idol who were mentioned back in uh, verses four, uh, chapter 4 and verse 11 uh, seem to be those who are warned about being passengers. They're, they're not taking their work seriously enough. Again, Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians, that they need to work with their hands. They, they can't suck the resources out of the church by being idle. The timid or disheartened might be facing opposition. They might be on sort of feeling spiritually shaky. You know, things aren't going well at work. Maybe there's a bit more opposition. It feels like they're losing out. And they're, they're starting to become disheartened and timid. Well, they need Christians around them to, to gird them up, to encourage them, to support them, to speak words of truth, and to be praying for them. The disheartened might be those struggling with bereavement. We, we looked at that in chapter 4. Those who had died in Christ... But grief is real. People struggling with bereavement. Maybe they've lost confidence in the gospel to bring peace. To encourage them would be helping them give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18. Well, how do we do that in the midst of grief? What does grieving well look like when we're called to rejoice in that? You see, grieving well allows for the tears and sorrows to flow. It allows for tears and sorrows, but it also resolves not to let grief rob you of worship. It puts a boundary and says, this is not going to be taken. It doesn't permit a complaining spirit to replace a thankful heart. I'm grateful for that insight from Paul Tripp. I think he's put it superbly there. That grief is not permitted to rob you of worship. A complaining spirit is not replacing a thankful heart. That's distinctive for believers. And Paul says you have the hope in Jesus Christ for that to be true. So a command to rejoice continually is not in opposition. It's not a contradiction. It's not faking it. The gospel gives us the power for it. God intends for us, particularly in these hard times of suffering, whether it's difficulties at work, whether it's spiritual opposition, whether it's in grief or bereavement, whether there's illness we're facing, consider this, that God intends for us to look for his mercy, to search for his love, to expect his mercy, even in those toughest of times. Now, on your own, it will be hard to remember that, won't it? 
That's why we have fellowship. That's why we have people who will speak into our life. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters, that God intends you to find more of his mercy, more of his love in those times, in unexpected ways? And with all of this deepens our relationships. You see, Christians together are called to be a help and encouragement to each other, to pursue a prayerful, thankful spirit. And coming alongside and helping the weak might refer to someone who's struggling physically, with illness, it might be a moral or a spiritual issue. We saw that with Paul warning about our sexual relationships and how we use that gift or abuse it. Maybe some are wrestling with temptation in habitual sin and need help. There's an openness and accountability there. And the word for help actually pictures a supportive arm around the shoulder. It's that word that's used there. Again, firmness but compassion. No condemnation just pointing to Christ. This is every day, every believer ministry that takes seriously the call to look after each other and show one another care, not retaliation, to persevere in patience, not busting out in angry frustration or actively retreating and putting distance between us and other people at church. I love how Angus McClay describes it. He says, oil in an engine and this is particularly true with Formula One on at the moment, oil in an engine enables all the moving parts to function together. So there's not too much friction, and there's no overheating. And in a similar way, these qualities in verses 12 to 18, if you were to write them down, list them out, these qualities of that oil, they assist the church. They help us live out and work out that growing faith how we work and grow together. So what do you sense, therefore, that the Lord is putting on your heart right now? What's the Holy Spirit prompting you? Where's the nudge? Where's the relationships that you have where, you know, you have someone who can speak into your life, who can encourage, who can get alongside you? Who, who do you listen to? Who have you invited? Who would you receive warning and correction from? Is that something that we want in order to grow? Who points out the blind spots and does that with compassion? And is that something you need to act on this week? Ask someone to do that, someone you trust, someone in life group or someone in leadership responsibility. Jesus' plan is to give us each other as a church in order to help each other pursue his change and his holiness. I love the way Lucy on uh, Wednesday at the prayer meeting from Psalm 135 chose verses that spoke of God um, looking at his people as his treasure in Psalm 135. And you see, that picture is so important. Why do we care for each other? Because each other is God's treasure. You're investing in what he sees as most valuable what he sees as precious. That's why we care for one another. So together, let's spur each other on to see and celebrate God's work in each other's lives, to remind him, to remind us of his greatness and goodness, to serve alongside each other in a way that actively reaches beyond the church, not just, as it says, doing good to uh, everyone, but everyone else as well. 
to do good to each other and everyone else. There's an outward missional focus here. And then, secondly, in verses 16 to 22, and more quickly, we need to grow a heart of worship that pursues God's will. A heart of worship. I think here we're getting a picture of the attitude of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Wholehearted worshippers of him, rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. Well, it sounds an impossibility, doesn't it? We've already talked about it in context of grief. But in the everyday grit and grind, really? I don't feel like it. Is it dishonest to be thankful when I'm feeling grouchy? It's not practical to do this because there's so much on my to-do list. Maybe these are some of the things running through your mind. They were when I was looking at the passage. Is God asking the impossible? Well, in one sense, yes, he is. If it was left up to us, if it was left up to our own strength. But when you see that qualifier in verse 18 and 19, did you see it? Because it's not impossible there, is it? Verses 18 and 19, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. See, it is God's will that we would do this. He's going to empower us. The Holy Spirit's work is seen as we rejoice and give thanks, as we're prayerful in that prayerful, constant attitude. This is all possible because Christians are in Christ Jesus. By faith, we're inseparable from him. We're in union with him. Right now, as we saw from Hebrews, Jesus is in the throne room representing us, praying for his church. In joy with the Father and the Spirit, rejoicing and equipping his people, his church, all over the world right now to do his will. Can you see how going on the vertical inspires us and lifts us up to see where the real power is? And this is the Spirit's work to rub that into our hearts, to rub into our hearts that God is good, God is in control, God has got you, God has called you to live for his glory. It is his will, he is faithful, I'm doing it through you. And you know what? I think quenching the spirit, therefore, in this context, looks like that sort of dismissive, cynical, maybe rather too cool attitude about enjoying God. That apathy to prayer. A bitterness, maybe, that leads to thanklessness. Oh, a bit like that. How dangerous that is to quench the spirit's work. We know that the Thessalonians had received God's word. Uh, through um, Paul, and we know that they had open hearts and minds to it. And quenching the spirit also involves ignoring God's word, treating prophecies with contempt. And back in chapter 2, verse 13, um, Paul said, we, we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, so Paul brings the gospel message, they hear it, they received it. He says, you accepted it, not as human words. They could have said, oh, this is just another guy coming with a philosophy and it has no power. It's, no, it's not true. It's just like a human opinion. But no, they actually took it as it is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So to put the Spirit's fire out is to neglect the Scriptures. It's to ignore what God is saying in his word. It would include ignoring Paul as an apostle. And chapter 5, verse 27, as we've seen here, where he implores them to read the letter out to all the brothers and sisters, 
You see, in that, he's saying there's no room to dismiss this letter. He doesn't say test it. It is God's word to us. It's what all believers need to hear. And the church had to discern the validity of other messengers and prophets at that time in the first century. But but they did that by the foundation of the Old Testament. They did that with the apostles' authoritative teaching. There was a necessary sifting so people wouldn't go astray. And today, as we think about that, it's a massive subject. But when we think about the the remarkable growth of Pentecostalism, of the charismatic movement over the last hundred years, there's so much that's been written and thought and prayed about into the area of prophecy and spiritual gifts and what that looks like in the church. And it's a subject that needs careful consideration. But all are agreed that there is a difference in the authority of Scripture, which is ultimate, and the gifts that come and how they're exercised. That the Word of God is foundational, And that Christians who have prophetic ministries or have ministries of preaching and exhortation or encouragement and insight will always sit under the authority of God's word. That's the measure. The Bible teacher John Stott helpfully suggested that prophecy since the closure of scripture is a a, a remarkable degree of insight either in scripture and its meaning or its application into the contemporary world. There's a spirit givenness A word in season that just tips, whether that's personal one-to-one, whether that's for a church, an insight that can't be let go of, that needs to be prayerfully applied and speaks to us for a season, for a time. It can be an encouragement. It can be a warning. But it never takes the place of God's final word. It is always measured by that. And it seems that Paul might well have that sort of prophecy in mind here. Other teachers, other preachers, not apostles who have insight, they have wisdom, And he's saying that that has all got to serve the gospel that he's given. Their messages are to be tested. If it's not in line with biblical doctrine, then you don't accept it. You don't need to respond to it. And you see, how's your discernment then? Are you just taking on board everything that you hear, whether it's from the front at church, whether it's just in media as well and in the world? These messages not thought through? What areas of doctrine do you feel, actually, I've I've got to do more study. How do I go about that? Come and chat with us. They're fantastic resources. We have more resources now than ever before, which are so accessible, that help us grow, not in knowledge for knowledge's sake, but in love for Christ. What do you think as a church we should be studying? What would you love to have in in sermon series as well? Please do come and talk to me and Jez and the other elders about things that you think we should be tackling. We might not be able to do them all on a Sunday morning, but we can create spaces to do that, to look at God's word and discern, okay, what is his will here? I don't know about you, but as in this letter with so many commands here, I'm thinking, gosh, how can we do this all? Everything we've been learning from 1 Thessalonians, how do we do it? There was one commentator I've been reading his work. He spent 30 years just on this one letter, and his commentary is yay big, and he said, that's short. (laughs) It looks like a brick. But how deep can you go? We've got to live it out. And that's why this is the best place to finish, is verses 23 to 24. We need God's power. Quite simply, we need God himself. 
Verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctity, uh, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless as, as at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Wow. It's God's will and work that we become like Jesus. And he is going to do it comprehensively. He's going to do it through and through. I was thinking as I was reading this of just how thorough that is. And at the time, I had put some jacket potatoes in the oven. And you know when you get a jacket potato just right, the oven is hot enough. It's in there for the right length of time. You leave it, you know, you put the oil, the salt on, you leave it. I hope I'm getting you starting to go, oh man, what are we having for lunch? But you know, it, just the right length of time. A little bit longer than you think, oh, maybe 45 minutes, fine. No, leave it a bit longer. And then it just comes out superbly, doesn't it? Crunchy on the outside, lovely and soft on the inside. Through and through. Now, it's not the microwave nonsense where you just stick it in seven minutes or nuke it for 100%, 10 minutes, and it comes out and you go, oh, it's kind of eatable, but it's, it's, oh, it's soggy. It's, what's this? It's a poor excuse. I'm not sure that God's going to bake us like a baked potato, but it's thorough. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be complete. It's going to be delightful. He's not rushing the work. It's going to take a lifetime. And it's going to take each other. So are we signed up for that? Is that what your expectation is as church? Give thanks, even with this week's struggles, when you're feeling drained, that the spiritual life is just ebbing out of you, and you might feel a fraud or a shadow Christian, turn to the one who is faithful. It's his will. He will do it. The Father will keep you. The Son is faithful. The Spirit is strong. Let's pray. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Father, we are in need of your constant grace. And Father, would you please lead us as a church to put into practice what we've read here in Scripture, to be a distinctive community that is patient, that lives in peace, that is rejoicing always, that has that attitude of prayerful dependence, that gives thanks in all circumstances, that does not put the Spirit in a box, but allows him to work fully and freely to bring us to maturity in Jesus Christ. Lord God, may your will be done through us here at Grace Church for your glory. Amen.